Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, February 9th, 2020, and this is show number 770. Well, before we get started, I want to say a big happy birthday to Troy Shimkus, who is in the live chat room for his birthday. I mean, what could be more fun than joining the live audience of the NoSillaCast? I think of a lot of things. But anyway, he's here, so happy birthday, Troy. Steve is still furiously creating the interview videos and audio from CES, and we noticed something really interesting. Remember I talked about the terrific service otter.ai that will create transcripts suitable for video subtitles? Just last week I talked about it. Well, my free one-month trial is still going on, so I thought I'll add subtitles to the video interviews. You know, it's still free for this month anyway, so I thought I'd do it. Well, imagine my surprise when I checked a couple of the videos and they already had subtitles. I knew that Google had started doing some magic transcription services, but I figured it would be pretty bad. So I produced the transcripts of a few videos using otter.ai, but guess what? The Google ones are just as good as the otter.ai ones. You know, both made mistakes, but they made different mistakes. I wasn't heartbroken that we didn't have to do this extra work, of course, but I was a little disappointed not to be able to use this new shiny tool I'd found. But then Steve noticed that out of the 20 or so videos he's produced so far, three did not have subtitles. And one of them had subtitles, but they were mostly in Dutch. Even better, at one point in the video, the subtitles just started saying, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, for like two minutes straight. Now, while that was entertaining, we decided to fix it. I taught Steve how to generate the subtitles using Otter. It took like three minutes to teach him because it is so easy. And now all of those videos have English subtitles. He's, uh, all he has to do is export the full audio with the music on both ends, import it into otter.ai. They do their magic. He exports the SRT file and then imports it into the captions section on YouTube. Now that's extra work for him, but we think it's really cool we're able to do this. Not only does it make the videos accessible to those with hearing impairments, but you know what? Sometimes who, people who can hear want to watch a video, but they're in an environment where they can't play the audio. So this can help in those situations too. Very cool all around. This week, we sort of had two Programming by Stealth episodes. After Programming by Stealth 89 last week, alert listener L. Butler on Twitter pointed out that Bart's maths were actually wrong in his solution to the currency conversion homework challenge. Bart took this as a learning opportunity for himself and for us. When he figured out where his logic went awry, he wrote it up, including the solution to the problem, as a blog post. Now, this didn't exactly fit into the flow of the Programming by Stealth series, but we still wanted to talk about it. Figuring this might happen again, he dubbed this the inaugural episode of yet another series called Programming by Stealth Tidbit One of Why. I thought that was funny. Well, anyway, in Programming by Stealth 89, I asked the question of whether some currencies maybe don't have two decimal places, and Bart thought they all did. L. Butler also chimed in on this, telling us that Korean won and Japanese yen both don't have anything past the decimal. I explained this in, tidbit segment, in the tidbit segment that uh, I realized that the ISO 4217 database that I'm using to scrape the names of the countries contains a field called minor unit, which is actually the number of decimal places for each currency. I discovered that some have zero, as he said, most have two, but some have three and some have four decimal places. I decided to try to update my code to take this into account. And now Bart says, I have to write a blog post about how I figured it out when I do figure out how to do it. Great, more homework to do. 
In any case, the tidbit segment is quite short at less than 15 minutes. Then we had a real programming by stealth episode where Bart Bouchatz explains JavaScript wrapping and unboxing. It's a really cool feature where JavaScript sort of helps us out when we need a little bit more out of some data than it's originally meant to give us. Since we've now separated the challenge solutions into standalone shows, this episode of Programming by Stealth is also pretty short, by PBS standards, at under 44 minutes. Both are great fun, and you can subscribe to them in your podcatcher of choice by searching for Programming by Stealth, and you can read along with Bart show notes over at pbs.bartificer.net. Last week on the show, I told you that podfeet.com was possibly under a denial-of-service attack. Bart had been working with me to try to figure out what was going on. We started a free trial of a service called Site247.com, which would allow me to monitor the health of my server. Throughout much of last week, we watched the site go down and then come back up. It was gruesome to just wait and watch while we tried to find a pattern to see what was happening. By we, of course, I mean Bart needed to find the pattern. The bad news is that we didn't find a pattern, but Bart did find a knob he could turn to help solve the symptoms. Let me do my best to explain my limited understanding of what he changed. A website needs a web needs web server software, and my website is run on the web server software called Apache. One of the settings for the web server is how many instantaneous web requests it will try to serve. My server was set to allow 150 per second. Now, that didn't sound like a big number to me, but Bart pointed out this is all basically simultaneously. 150 people, let's say, trying to go to the same site at the exact same instant. I asked him, is 150 like CNN level traffic? And he said, well, maybe not, but Leo Laporte level traffic. That's probably not what you would expect on my site. Now, here's the problem with allowing my server to have 150 simultaneous requests. Each request spawns what's called a busy worker. Each busy worker needs some RAM. 150 busy workers at the same time need more RAM than my server actually has. So when the anomaly occurred, my server ran out of RAM and simply shut itself down. Then it restarted itself, and at that point, all was grand until it happened again. So we're calling this an anomaly because we technically don't know if it's a malicious attack. Bart sent me a note asking permission to do his own personal denial-of-service attack on podfeet.com. Well, that sounded fun, right? Sure, I replied. He wanted to do a controlled attack because he could test this theory about the number of busy workers and then see if he could reduce the number of busy workers that could be allowed until any attack didn't cause the server to fall over in a heap. He got down to 60 simultaneous requests and it was still dying, but when he set the maximum number of busy workers down to 50, he could no longer knock it down with his own little, not distributed, denial of service attack. Ever since we've been watching and these anomalies keep happening, usually like twice a day, but uh, they never happen at the same time. And so Sandy asked me, can you see the IPs from which these requests are coming at those times? I thought that was a grand idea so I could find out who's attacking me. I didn't have any faith that uh, finding them would help me stop them, but it seemed like fun. So I caught the problem happening at one point, and I quickly grabbed the log file of web requests, and I parsed it in Excel, as one does. I discovered that at any pretty much any old point in time, there's a couple of IPs in Romania that are making 25% of the web requests I have, and that's when nothing bad is happening. That's just regular old web traffic. During the anomalies, I haven't found any odd behavior by a set of IPs, and in fact, the total number of hits to the site does not go up. 
Now, I'm not at all convinced it is a denial-of-service attack yet, but for now, BART has been able to mitigate the issue. I've been keeping people up to date by posting in our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, in our Facebook community at podfeet.com slash Facebook, and a little bit on Twitter at podfeet. And of course, I let our lovely patrons know what's going on at podfeet.com slash Patreon. Uh, Oh, I almost forgot. And the Podfeet Press. I've been sending out notices on Podfeet Press as well, which you can get to by going to subscribe to uh, the Podfeet Press right at podfeet.com. All right. Well, let's hope this has slowed it down and stopped it for now so I can stop worrying about it. Let's start off next with a quick little tip from good friend of the show, Trevor in Canberra. Hi, Nasilla Castaways. Trevor from Canberra here with a wonderful discovery I found via a sponsored Facebook ad. Now, we all love shopping online and getting a bargain each time we purchase our new gadgets. Well, I've I've come across this fantastic extension for Safari that does all the legwork for us. It's called Honey, and it's free. Don't worry if you use another browser like Firefox or Google Chrome. There are extensions for them too. The company blurb goes something like this. If you don't already know, Honey is a free web browser extension that automatically scans the internet for every work on coupon code while you're shopping online. Then at checkout, it instantly applies the best deal to your cart. What's not to like? Well, for a start, to allow Honey to do its so-called function, you have to give it permission in Safari. But giving permission comes with this warning. Honey can read sensitive information from your web pages, including passwords, phone numbers, and credit cards on all web pages. It can also see your whole browsing history. Sounds really dodgy to me. As Bart says, follow the money. And in this case, you don't have to look very far. I don't know if Honey even works, as I deleted as soon as I saw that warning. I'll get my bargains from Amazon using Alison's affiliate links, and we both benefit. Well, thank you for that, Trevor. That's pretty crazy. That I don't think I've ever read a privacy setting that said that. Um, I do love to see the effect that Bart's guidance has had on all of us. You know, I never used to read privacy policies, but I'm doing it more and more. Your story works perfectly into security bits later in the show. And also, thanks for mentioning the Amazon affiliate links. I love that. All right, let's uh, kick into an interview from CES. We're in the Top Greener booth, and I'm chatting with Kyle Meglin, and he's going to show us USB-C receptacles, which I think is much more interesting than that sounds, right? Sounds good. So over here, we're Top Greener, like she said. We started in the USB market. Um, We have the largest amount of configurations for USB in-wall products. But what we'll do is start here with our triple USB port. This is your standard USB-A port. You get up to 5.8 amps of charging power, 2.4 amps per port. And then you also still get to keep your two AC outlets. So it's really great for families who have lots of devices to charge, but not a whole lot of space. So then I'm going to talk also to the audio only audiences. What we're talking about is is not something that plugs into your outlet, but replaces your outlet, correct? Exactly. Yes. So, so when this one we're looking at here has the two standard uh, uh, power ports, but it's also got three USB-A. And what are these here? So these are just your standard AC outlet. Just oh, that's for the other half. 
half of that. Just plug it in. Yeah. Getting confused by exactly. that. Exactly. So can I ask you how big that is back behind it? Because you do have to have, I think, a little bit bulkier, bigger box yeah. area. So they're actually not too much thicker than a standard receptacle, and they they wire like a standard receptacle as well. So you don't have to have any specialty wires. A neutral wire is a problem for people with older homes, um, but that's not an issue here. And really, in terms of space, you should be absolutely fine. Okay, so this yeah. is adding three USB-A ports. Yes, absolutely. All right, and then what else you got? So then we move down to where we have a couple of different configurations that include USB-C. And so what's great about USB-C is a lot of new phone companies, yep. uh, you know, e-readers, tablets, even some, some MacBooks. That's an example yep. of one that's moving into the USB-C space. Um, so that's just great. It provides you a combined six amps, three amps per port. So you're going to get a nice fast charge out of there. So you could charge a MacBook Pro out of a, a 3 amp port? Well, no, not quite. So we have a different model for that. Okay. So this is where it gets a little tricky. So this is maybe more phones at this point. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Phones, tablets, things like that that don't require a whole lot of uh, juice or oomph, right, I guess. Right. Yeah. That's my technical word for it as yeah. well. I'm a mechanical <laughs> engineer and I never got that stuff. Yeah. Okay, so moving on. So then we come over to here. This one is actually... Our, our prize possession. This one, Wirecutter's best USB outlet of 2018. Um, so you get your standard USB-A port, 2.4 uh, amp output, and then three amps in the USB-C. So that's kind of like best of both worlds. If one you of have, each, yeah. Yeah, old or new devices. And so moving on from there is where it gets really technical. Oh, I see it. I see my favorite two letters, PD for yes. power delivery. You got it. You know, you should do this for a living or I know, something. Oh, really? I should. <laughs> so this one right here, this is one of the first ones that we came out with. It has Qualcomm Quick Charge 3.0. And so what's great about that is that it's actually, we actually work with them and it's certified. So you know you're getting the product that you need. I like certified when it comes to my electricity. Absolutely. And all of our products are UL listed, FCC compliant where it's necessary. So really you're getting a, you know, something that's not going to burn your house down. So power delivery. So can I do my MacBook Pro in that port? You cannot. However, <laughs> we're let, so close. We are getting closer, I promise. You're teasing me. Yeah. Teasing me here, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, so but power delivery is great for newer phones. It's just a more efficient way to charge. Okay, so the one we're looking at right now that has a standard outlet plus the USB 3.0 and power delivery. You got in it. In USB-C. You got All it. All right, so we we lost one of our our ports, our our uh, power plugs receptacles in order to get uh, both of those we did but we're coming back for redemption with with the newest <laughs> version these two here are going to be coming out in mid 2020 i heard may but don't quote me on that i don't want to okay. be liable okay. um but so what's great about this is it's the same exact thing except here you're getting you're getting the um the second the second ac port okay so we've got two ac ports we've got mm -hmm. power delivery now now it's saying 30 watts though Oh yeah, so we're bump we're bumping up the power on that one. So what we actually are doing, a lot of the, the power needs for USB-C it comes into the laptops. Your typical uh, laptop or like a, I said the Mac was an example. The MacBook. Mac, MacBook's like 65 watts. Yeah, 60 to 65. So actually right here in this one, this is where we're moving into serving those people. This is made with gallium nitride. It's new technology for us. 
it's just a much faster and more efficient way to, I guess, harness power is what we're going to say. But so this is actually 60 watts. So you 60 can, watts. And it even says gallium nitride on it. Sure does. Yeah. So that's that's for our people who um, have a whole lot of devices and, you know, you don't need to brick. You don't have to lose outlet space with your big old adapter. So Right. So we've got two power outlet, AC power outlets. We've got power delivery at 60 watts and uh, quick charge 3.0 at 27 watts. You got it. That's crazy. Crazy. So those those last two are not out yet. They're not out yet. But What's your? Do you know what your price point's going to be on the last one? Ah, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so pretty much they all start from anywhere from thirteen dollars up to thirty-five. But since these ones are such high output, I'd probably say it's going to be in the forty-dollar okay. range. Okay, so. but I don't have to sell a kidney to get it. You can if you want to, but I wouldn't advise it. I have a lot of change leftovers, what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then you could just buy more. Very good. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I could read you the, uh, the name of this, but it's got a whole bunch of letters and numbers in it. So where would people go to find out more about these fine products? So you can go to topgreener.com backslash 2020. That's where we'll have all of our information, our online catalogs. Um, and then from there, you'll be able to go to the store, browse our products. If you're not a fan of buying online, paying for shipping, you're a Prime member. We also sell on Amazon. Oh, very good. We'll be getting my Amazon affiliate links on that one there then. There you go. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Kyle. Sounds great. So I just absolutely loved Kyle's total excitement about USB power receptacles. I mean, that's a guy who loves the product and loves what he does, isn't it? They did look really cool, and uh, but I loved how he kept teasing the very best one till the end. I'm a big fan of the Sure products. I always have. I use the Sure MVI as my mic interface. And I am standing here with Laura Davidson from Sure right now, and she's going to talk to us about a mic for the iPhone. Yeah, so this is the MV88 Plus video kit. So it comes with everything you see here, except the phone, of course. By the way, this is audio and video, so describe what you're showing. Oh, great. So this is a stereo condenser microphone in a shoe mount. It has the phone clip and a Manfrotto Pixie tripod. So it's really versatile for content creators, podcasters, vloggers. It also has a headphone out on the back, which is really seems like a kind of silly feature to have, but it's amazing and indispensable once you start using it in the field because so that's to monitor your uh, the recording to make sure it's not horrible. Exactly, because how many times have you recorded something, gotten back home to edit it and no bueno. So you have to monitor the audio, yeah. You have to. So we've made that easy for you. So by the clip, she means she's got it's uh, it's basically mounted in a in a C clamp here yes. that's holding the uh, the phone and mounting the microphone up on top, and then she's got a, as a handle this small tripod from Manfrotto. Right, and then you can also do it in a number of different configurations. If you wanted to flip this into what we call field recording mode, you can flip that C clamp and attach it directly to the tripod itself and have uh, more of a horizontal aim for your microphone, which is nice. But one of the main features about the MV88 Plus and our mode of products specific to this microphone is that you can switch up your polar patterns, which I love. So if you want to be able to capture the sights and sounds of CES, go into stereo mode, then switch it up to monocardioid mode, do a quick vlog, and then you can switch it to mono bidirectional and get a great interview where it disables the front mic, opens up the two side mics, you got two channels of audio, sounds killer. Now when you do that, do you point the mic straight up when you, in order to get the side no. to side? so what you would do is you could keep it just like this and I'm here, you're there, kind of oh, okay. thing. Okay, so it's on the left and right sides. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, oh, now she's showing the uh, microphone yeah. inputs on the sides. Yeah, so this comes off. She pulled off the little, little puffy thing. Yeah, the windscreen comes with it. Um, but And we recommend using that in any situation unless you're in a perfectly quiet environment. 
Um, so yeah, so you can see the, the microphone, it's a stereo condenser, so you have that nice stereo pattern, but it will disable that front mic, open up the two side mics, so I'm here, you're here on either side. Oh, yeah. okay, okay, so it's got a front mic and two side mics. Correct, exactly. So this is, what she's been showing us is very graphical, you can see exactly what the pattern is going to be, so there's no guessing of what that's supposed to look like. Now you've got it at a 135 degree angle, can I grab those little dots and move them and make it smaller? You can. Oh, only if I'm not lame. Only if I'm not lame. There we go. She just switched it to 30, 60 degrees. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. And then you can also do some um, compression, limiting, five band EQ, all within the app. And when you go into the recording option, once you've recorded, you can store it within the app and then do a little bit of light editing, like trimming, adding a fade out, and then share it directly from the phone. Um, but you don't have to use our app. If you want to use the app to configure the microphone and then use your favorite audio app, you can do that as well. Okay, and this you can do this while recording video as well, of course, right? Exactly. We actually have a video app as well called Motive Video. Oh, I didn't know that. I had never uh -huh. seen that. There you go. Yeah. And so this, you still have that great interface where you can change the polar pattern, but you also have some great features like controlling your mic gain on the fly, from within the app, controlling your exposure level right within the app, and your frames per second, um, audio file type, and audio resolution. Oh, that's really slick. So that the Motive software comes with the MV88 Plus as well, right? Correct. So when you plug it in for the first time, it'll prompt you to download the app. Very good. So how much is the MV88 Plus with all of this stuff? $249. Oh, that's not bad at all. Not too bad. Not for, not for a great mic. Well, thank you very much. I love Motive uh, and uh, the Sure products. I'll keep coming back. Great. Thanks so much. One of the things people talk about with electric vehicles is the concern you might have about whether you've got enough battery charge in your car to make it to your destination. They call this range anxiety. With an internal combustion engine, or ICE, like those of us in the EV world like to call it, with an ICE vehicle, you usually have lots of options to stop and get gas, and getting gas is a matter of maybe 10 minutes, including a bio break. But with an electric vehicle, you have to make sure there is a charging station on your path and you have to make sure it will charge you up enough in a reasonable length of time. For the Teslas, we use these things called superchargers and they charge very, very quickly, but you have to make sure there's one on your path. Now, a while ago, I wrote a Tesla Tech article I entitled, How Long Does It Take to Charge?, in which I discussed all of the variables that go into answering that question. I think that long list of variables adds up to range anxiety. I have to confess that I downplayed range anxiety at first, and I assumed I'd just be able to come up with some easy assumptions and algorithms to ensure an anxiety-free road trip. The problem is data-driven, so it should be a cakewalk for me. But I was wrong. The more I drive the Model 3, the more range anxiety I'm getting because I don't completely understand how to figure it out, how far I can go. I haven't cracked the code on this just yet. I mean, I have a master's degree in engineering, remember, so if it's hard for me, how do normal people do this? I'm going to walk you through three road trips we've taken in the last six months and how they affected my range anxiety. We drove to Fresno last October to visit Steve's parents. Fresno is about 230 miles from our house in LA. The particular model of Tesla I bought has a range, a max range of 310 miles. Now, we all remember the line, your mileage may vary, but let's assume 310 is a good baseline assumption of the range of this vehicle anyway. I have a home Tesla wall charger that adds 33 miles of range in an hour, or 33 miles per hour. At that rate, I can charge it completely overnight. 
Now, it's not good for this kind of battery to be charged to 100% all the time, so they give you a little on-screen slider that allows you to choose 100% for road trips or, say, 80% for day-to-day charging. For our Fresno trip, the night before, we chose 100%. While we believed we could easily make it to Fresno on that single charge, it was only 230 miles of driving on a 310-mile charge, we didn't want to wind up in Fresno with an empty battery, so we stopped for a snack and charged up midway there, and then we were able to tootle around town while we were in Fresno without worrying about the electrical power, uh, the, the battery left in the car. The problems arose when we drove home. Before we left the Fresno area, we went to the local Tesla supercharger where you can charge at up to 500 miles per hour, at least for the first 70% where the charge curve is linear. And we did a little shopping at the local mall, bought some Christmas presents for Forbes. It was a lot of fun. I forget how high we charged it up, but I think it was like around 90%. According to my mad skills at subtraction, I should have had more than enough charge to easily drive from Fresno to our friend Nancy's house in LA to pick up Tesla, the dog, not the car, and then drive the rest of the way home. It should have been no problem at all. But just to be on the safe side, we stopped at a supercharger about halfway home to top it off. When we plugged it in, we saw the speed of charge ramp up to the expected 500 miles per hour for a supercharger, but then it went past 500. 500 is supposed to be the max. It went 500 to 600, then 700, and then it stopped charging. Confused, we pulled out the charging cable, put it back in, and the same thing happened again. Now we assume this must be a broken charging station, so we moved to a new one. And the same thing happened again. We tried a third one. Same problem. Now, we were really angry that so many chargers appeared to be broken. Finally, we moved to a stall where someone had just successfully finished charging, and that one worked. While we were relieved to finally be able to charge, you can imagine that this incident reduced our confidence that we would always be able to get a charge. Did have a fun little story while we were there, though. The driver of the Tesla next to us got out of his car, and it was the actor Larry David, best known for the TV show Curb Your Enthusiasm, and he's also on Saturday Night Live right now playing Bernie Sanders. Anyway, he walked into the same restaurant I was going into, so I was right behind him, and he let the door slam in my face. Oh, that was my big touch with fame. Okay, so we had a lovely lunch. We stayed over an hour charging the car. We watched a little Andy Griffith on the Tesla screen using Netflix, and it was actually a lovely way to have lunch. I'm thinking that I'm learning that this is the wrong strategy. Not the Andy Griffith part, the long charging time. Sitting there for an hour or more is a waste of time. It makes more sense to stop a few times for 20 to 30 minutes to charge because you're on that sweet part of the curve where you gain a lot of energy in a small amount of time. After a half hour, you're really not gaining enough to be worth the time spent. Anyway, back on the road, we started to watch the range we had for our trip. Let's talk about how you know that range when you're in a Tesla Model 3. There are two separate indicators. Next to the speedometer readout, there's a little bar graph that looks like a normal computer battery bar, and it tells you how many miles you can go. There's also an energy icon on screen that gives you a pretty graph called consumption. The vertical axis is your energy consumption in watt hours per mile, and it graphs the data over the last 5 miles, 15 miles, or 30 miles. Let's uh, Now it says MI, I assume that means miles, not minutes, but anyway, let's assume it's miles. On the same graph, you also get a dotted line showing your projected range based on what you, how you've been driving. As we were driving home, I looked at both versions of the range. The little battery symbol uh, next to the uh, speedometer said 203 miles, which was plenty of range to get home. 
but the consumption graph said I could only go 122 miles. So now I get that there's a lot of variables in these calculations, so absolute precision is not expected, but having the main indicator show me 66% more range than the consumption graph, that's terrifying. Which one is right? At this point in the trip, we'd been pretty much driving on flat ground, but ahead of us, we had a pass through the mountains on Interstate 5 called the Grapevine, which would be a climb to around 4,000 feet. As we started up the Grapevine, I saw our watt our our watt hours per mile consumption climbing, and that range number was dropping and it looked like we might not make it to Nancy's house. But after we got over the pass and started to go downhill, the consumption rate plummeted and the range said we could go 999 miles. Well, that's super helpful now, isn't it? Of course we could go a thousand miles as long as we're coasting downhill. Anyway, we eventually got back on flat ground and according to the battery bar, we would easily make it to Nancy's but not make it home from her house. Good grief, we had to stop again and charge. We ended up hitting LA rush hour traffic because of all the charging stops, so the trip took us seven hours when it should have taken maybe five. So lessons learned, short booster stops, and watch the graph obsessively to make yourself crazy. So that was the first trip. Now, we drove the Tesla to CES in Las Vegas this year for the first time. It's 286 miles from our house to Las Vegas with a pass or two over 4,000 feet. We discussed our EV planning with our friend uh, Ron, who had driven his Tesla Model S to Vegas a couple of weeks before. He suggested a few places for Tesla superchargers along the way, and one in Las Vegas he recommended. We stopped on the way in Baker, we had a quick 30-minute lunch at El Pollo Loco while the, char the car charged up, and we ended in Las Vegas with 11% left. Looks like we figured this out now, right? Well, maybe not. While we were in Vegas, we hung out with our good friend Joe LaGreca. He's been contemplating getting a Tesla for his wife, and he was super interested in seeing the car and how things worked with charging. We decided to drive the car, rather than our usual Uber, when we went out to dinner about 12 miles away. The indicator said we had enough miles of range to make the round trip, but with the variability we've run into, we didn't trust it. We decided to go to the Tesla supercharger next to the Link Hotel. This is the one Ron told us about. It. He explained to us that there's a secret code you need to enter that you find on screen in your car, and you enter it into this little keypad at the entrance to the supercharger. You know, it made me feel special like we were in the in crowd. We plugged in one of the chargers. Remember the problem we had coming back from Fresno where the charge weight went up to 700 miles per hour and then stopped? It happened again. We tried it again and again, and it kept stopping and saying, check equipment. Well, you know, I took the connector and I blew into it like you do with a game cartridge from the 90s, but inexplicably that didn't fix it. We tried three more stations and all of them had the same behavior. Now, I want you to note that there were like a dozen other people at stations happily charging away. We even tried one that a guy had just been using to charge, and it still failed. Now, we'd burned up a lot of the time we had for charging before we had to go to dinner, so we were getting really anxious. We noticed they had some regular home chargers against another wall, so we tried one of those, and it worked, but those take 35, uh, it takes an hour to get 35 miles, so we weren't going to be able to get enough charge to make it to dinner. Now, at this point, Joe made a really astute observation. He said he noticed that each time we tried to use the supercharger, in the few minutes before it failed, we were actually gaining about five miles. He suggested we could just do it over and over and over again and gain range faster that way than sitting on this dumb home charger. We gave his idea a try, and not only did it charge five miles each attempt, after about four times, 
it actually started to charge normally. Now, when we were on this last attempt, I called Tesla to ask their advice. The dude on the phone told me that the entire station was offline and that's why I couldn't charge. I pointed out to them the other dozen people who were successfully charging, but he said, nope, I can't see the station, so there's nothing I could do. I told him, maybe it's my car that's having the problem, not the charger. And I asked him, you know, tap into it, run a diagnostic or something. We know Tesla can see what our cars are doing, right? But he said he couldn't do that because the station was offline. It wasn't, of course, but I was understandably upset. I told him I wanted a manager to call me back. He said I'd get a call in the next 24 to 48 hours. That was in January, and I have not received a call back from Tesla. The only good news is that while we were having this happen to us, we started talking to a guy who was charging, and he showed us a really cool app and gadget for the Tesla, but I'm going to tell you about that on another day. We did make our dinner. It wasn't exactly the relaxing experience I was hoping for, and you can imagine how much my range anxiety ramped up. Also of note, I don't think Joe's quite as excited about buying his wife a Tesla as he was before. My final example might shed some light on the issues with predicting the range of my vehicle. We were in San Diego playing with Lindsay and Nolan and Forbes this last weekend. By playing, I mean Steve installed a smart Ecobee thermostat and a Rachio smart sprinkler system while I did drywall repair on a hole in my future granddaughter's bedroom wall. It was awesome. Anyway, we charged the car to 100% before we left, and uh, that again, that should be 310 miles. I told Steve this was overkill. We already had enough charge, but he said, no, we should fill it 100%. I should listen to him more often. So, in the morning, we made the three-mile round-trip car to Starbucks for mochas and a cake pop. Then I drove 18 miles round-trip to drop off Forbes at daycare. We then piled up Tesla in the Tesla, and we drove the 97 miles to Kyle's house. We met up with Kyle and his wife, Nikki, and we drove 44 miles round-trip to Newport Beach for a baby CPR class. They're having a baby, too. Anyway, then we drove the 17 miles home to our house. If you add that all up, and I use all the fingers on both hands to do the addition, that's a grand total of 179 miles on what is supposed to be a 310-mile range vehicle. We should have had 131 miles left. But the energy consumption graph said that at the rate we'd been consuming, we only had 35 miles left. That means we were short nearly 100 miles. I'm okay with your mileage may vary, but being short by 30% is not acceptable. When we put the car in park, we got an on-screen warning that said, battery low, there will be significantly less energy available from your battery if it gets colder. We recommend charging now. We have a weather station, so I can tell you exactly how cold it was. I know batteries don't do well at low temperatures, but it was 48.2 degrees when it told me it was cold and it wasn't going to be able to, you know, we really needed to charge. That should not have been cold enough to affect our our range by 30%. So maybe I'm just not clever enough to understand the range of this car, or maybe there's something wrong with the car. So I've made an appointment uh, at the Tesla service center. Actually, they're going to send somebody to my house to check out my car. I don't know. Maybe I need to understand the impact of wind. It was windy. Maybe the air conditioner and the heater were were changing the range of the car. Maybe it was because I had my seat heater on at one point. Maybe it's the external temperature or possibly the phase of the moon. See what I mean? Range anxiety is real, people. 
I've noticed that there is a lot about cats and cat litter at CES this year. There are five different companies competing in this space that I've seen. And right now I'm actually with Clementine Yang at the iCuddle booth to talk about the connected cat. Yes. So what we are doing is uh, we are not just selling a, a litter box. We are selling a smart home for cats. So as you can see now, this is a smart, uh, smart litter box. What makes it so special? Is, uh, it's the only litter box that, that actually packs the waste in a little bag. So it's like really clean and like it's the, the most, the most cleanest, the cleanest uh, litter box you can ever find. And besides the, uh, the litter box, we're also like providing a water, a water fountain and a smart feeder. So with the smart feeder, as you can see, there is a camera and there is a speaker. So with the compu computer vision, which we call, call it AI, so uh, it can actually recognize like which pet it is. So if you have a, a ginger cat, a white cat, so it can an actually analyze like how many times they're eating a day. And for the uh, water fountain, because it's uh, app connected, so you will be able to find like uh, how many times your cats come to drink water. So um, yeah, so like with the whole system, like you can really like analyze your cat's diet and like how many times they eat a day. So it's like really good for their health. And yeah, that's why we call it smart home for cats. If you've ever had an older cat, watching how much water they drink is incredibly important. Yeah. So I noticed that there's a, there is a camera on the feeder yeah. so you can recognize which cat. Can you, I don't see a camera on the water fountain though. Yeah, but there is actually a sensor like embedded in. But does it know which cat drank? Oh, yeah, maybe not. Maybe yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and, more for the food. Yeah. And I'm glad to see that there's no camera in the cat litter box for privacy reasons, because that just wouldn't be good. So inside this, uh, it's kind of a big item we're looking at here. This cat litter box is maybe three feet tall. Yeah. Um, there's. You explained to me that there's a scoop down inside. Yes. That, that goes through and picks it up and then does it shake it to, to yes. like to save the litter? Yeah, yeah. That's why we, it can actually save like 50% of the litter because um, it only collects the waste. But most of the other products, you know, like they just dump the whole thing. It's such a waste. Yes, definitely a waste of waste. Well, thank you very much. Uh, how would people find out about iCuddle? Oh, uh, well, we, are, uh, we actually like we, we already had a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, so you go to kickstarter.com and you will find like iCuddle, like that's our brand name. So. And it's I-K-U-D-D-L-E. Yes. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Samantha. Thank you for your time. Well, at first, when I realized there were five companies working on cat litter removal at CES, I thought I should interview them all. But I'm sorry to say that iCuddle is the only cat litter interview we did at CES. This is the second time I'm going to use the word witchcraft in my interviews already this week. Oh, sorry, it's magic. I'm with uh, Yuval Boger, and I'm with, uh, uh, he has a company called Ycharge, and I'm looking at a train going in a circle, and it says, this train has no batteries. All right, so what is this uh, magic you've got going on here? So what we're demonstrating is long-range delivery of power without wires. Everyone has battery-operated devices or phones where they say, I don't want to change batteries, I don't want to replace batteries, I don't want to run wires to security cameras or... It's a battery in my book. <laughs> so, so batteries go away. And what we do is we use infrared light to safely deliver power up to 30 feet away. And what you see here on the train is you see a small receiver, essentially a photovoltaic cell, that's capturing the infrared light that's sent from our transmitter. 
converting it back to electricity, and then you can do whatever you want with that. So you're not, uh, if you're using infrared, is that a fairly collimated beam then? It is a collimated beam, and, and that is an advantage because with infrared light, you can be as far as you want from the source, and you're not losing energy. If the, if the beam spread out, then with a given size receiver, you're going to get less and less energy the farther you are from the energy source. So this explains a uh, question. I was talking to my friend Joe LaGreca about this, about your booth and what you guys were going to be showing, and you said that you're uh, very efficient. And I'm like, oh, it, wireless stuff is charging is never efficient, but this isn't actually charging. But that's why you're able to do it so efficiently, right? Exactly. Because the power does not diminish with distance. If you're using other technologies like uh, RF, with every doubling of distance, you get one quarter of the power. Right, right. With us, with every doubling of distance, you get 100% of the power. It does not oh, change. Nice, nice. So uh, explain, what have we got going up and above here? I can see two things. They look like cameras, but what are they? So they are uh, energy sources. They send. So the, the one over there is powering the train. The one in the center here? Yeah. Okay. The small one over there, imagine it could plug into a socket or even uh, fit into a light bulb. Is, power, is charging the ring camera over there. So on the back of the sign, there's a, that one of these receivers that's receiving energy from that little box, and now it's a completely wireless ring camera, never needs a battery to be replaced. Oh, wow, that is crazy. So that, that's going from, you would plug that into the wall. Got you, got you. Can we stop the train for a second if I put my hand over it? Does, if you put oh, look, it, did so, you see it, Steve? Oh, wait for it to go again, I'll yeah, do it again. So you, you, Oh, so you can be like David Copperfield. You can stop a train with your bare hands, right? <laughs> and then once you stopped it, the transmitter is starting to look for devices to charge. And in a few seconds, the train will start running again because it found that. So if it's looking for devices to charge, does that mean it's, it's moving around, uh, scanning all over, looking for a, a device? Exactly. You can, you can think about it this way. So, for instance, I have a laser pointer here just to demonstrate. Okay. If you were able to see the beam, you would see something like this, where the beam is following the train. Right. And when you cover when you cover the receiver, now it's going to just look around, find receivers, so, and then automatically it, start. So can it see more than one receiver at a yes. time? Yes. So for instance, uh, tomorrow we're announcing a bunch of partners in a commercial bathroom application. A lot of devices in a commercial bathroom, like soap dispensers or touchless faucets. Oh, yeah. I never operated. thought about that. That's and a... It, a lot of work to keep those going. Yeah, imagine an airport. You've got dozens of bathrooms and dozens of devices. Now you, you can install a couple of these transmitters and never have to worry about that again. So a single Plus you're not throwing a lot of batteries away. Exactly. So there's an environmental cost to throwing batteries away. And, and there is a... So it makes it very simple. And a single transmitter can serve most devices in a single bathroom. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to stop the train, Steve. I'm going to stop it with my bare hand. Are you ready? Look at me. Woo! Now zoom in here. So that's the photo photovoltaic uh, cell here? Right. And now it's uh, looking for it. And in a few seconds, it'll find it and, and start running again. So I assume this is for commercial applications mostly, or are you going to be selling to the general public as well? So we're selling to other businesses. You see the train started running again. So this could be a smart door lock. For instance, a door lock, it's really difficult to get energy to a door. Yeah. So, yeah. But you can do it this way. Or it could be a security camera or could be a, a whole bunch of either consumer or commercial applications. We're selling it to vendors that want to embed that into their products and make them battery-free, or being able to deliver features 
that they couldn't previously do because they were limited by battery power. I, I can picture exactly what's going on here. Like I've got the August lock, and I had to buy the August uh, Connect, they call it, to plug into power right next to it so that it could get the, the Bluetooth signal, the Bluetooth LE, in order to convert it over to Wi-Fi to go up to the, uh, to the uh, router. But if we had this, you wouldn't have to do that. So you could have two things. One, I have an August lock as well, and I need to replace batteries every two or three months, and now I wouldn't. Now, August has BLE. Why don't they have Wi-Fi? Well, they don't have they Wi-Fi. they burn because, out the batteries. Because they run out of batteries. And now you could get rid of the BLE and get rid of the batteries and make installation truly simple. Well, I really hope you're super successful on this. If people wanted to read up on it, where would they go? You go to whycharge.com, and we've got plenty of information there. Great. Thank you very much. Oh, wait a minute. Well, he's asked, Steve's asking me to ask how much, but he does, they don't sell direct to consumers. Well, it's designed to be an upgrade to consumer devices. So if you think about, oh, I bought a $700 phone, how much would I be willing to pay for that to be completely wirelessly charged? Or you've got a $150 August lock, how much would you be willing to pay to be completely battery-free and wire-free? So that could give you a sense okay. of how much that's going to cost. Okay, but we don't but, set but, the end-user prices. Right, it's right. our partners that do that. But I can see a lot of advantages. It's very, very cool. I'm very excited to have found you. Thank you. Thank you. When Steve posted the link to the YCharge video in our Slack, there were a couple of great questions. John Dawson questioned the marketing description that we put in the video explanation. He said he'd really rather like to know if Allison was telling him that it was true that this was as cool as it sounds. L. Butler also asked about some specifics on whether it's really shipping. Do we really think it could deliver the power that you've all told me it could do? These are both great, great questions, and they're really kind of related. First of all, I don't always know whether the devices are real and whether there ever will be real products. Steve explained on Slack that there are different, several different categories of devices and products shown at CES. He pointed out that there are some more established companies like Bridge, Sure, Ring, Sense, Belkin. These reliably ship what and when they say they will. In fact, many of these companies are often shipping the products that, they, that they're showing off at CES. Sense was an example of that. The product they showed us was actually already on Amazon. Steve went on to explain that some smaller companies ship the product late or possibly not at all. But sometimes they surprise you. Remember the Akuva earbuds with the removable batteries? As we walked away from that interview, I told Steve I thought they were clearly not close to shipping because the models we saw did not appear to be production units. They looked, you know, they were a little bit clunky looking, and I didn't think they were ready to go into production. Imagine my surprise last week when I got an email from them saying they're shipping the product already, so you never really know. There's also the companies that are showing off really early development products. Remember Steve's interview with Dr. Andre uh, Dragomir of Aquark Technologies about the compact quantum devices? Well, those were definitely prototypes, but it's still really cool to see the future before it gets here. Like YCharge, these won't be devices you ever buy directly from these companies, but rather their technology will hopefully be a part of other devices in the future. That'll be weird if we have quantum devices in our homes, but anyway. Overall, we choose the vendors we interview based on whether the product seems to solve a real problem for people, and then we try to show it to you in a light where you understand whether the product is anywhere near being something we can actually buy. I really appreciate those great questions, guys. Keep them all coming. I mentioned our lovely patrons when I was talking about how I was messaging the community. You may be wondering what this is about, or this may be the 238th time you've heard me talk about it. The idea, anyway, is that you can help support the production of the show financially 
by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon and deciding on a dollar amount per show that you'd like to pledge. Think about the value you get from the show. Might be learning new tools. Might be learning about a gadget you now know you can't live without. It might be learning about how to diagnose a denial of service attack or what things to be worried about or not worried about in security bits. Or maybe you're just entertained. If you get a dollar a week's worth of value out of the different shows we do here on the Podfeet Podcast, go ahead and become a patron. If you are having trouble making ends meet, I forbid you to become a patron. Seriously, do not do it and don't feel badly about it. Only do this if you have the money to spare and you would like to help keep the podcast going. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Boost Shots. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing fine. I have survived Storm Kira, who's been wreaking some havoc around these parts. And you're somewhat recovered from being smacked by a car? I am, yes. I, I am. If I think back to how I was two weeks ago, I am much better. If I think back to how perfect it is, I am a long way to go. Uh you can breathe, but now. I was told to try. I was told four to six weeks recovery, right? So, okay, I'm more than a third better. Okay, good. You can breathe without pain. Normal breathing, yes. Um, yesterday I took my inhalers without too much stabbing pain, which was a pleasant change. Um, and I can cough, but oh, I can't sneeze. Cool. Or rather, <laughs> I can, and I often have no choice. But oh no, 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 no. Oh, sneezing is evil. So I am now, I have a, a, a handkerchief welded to me because the slightest tingle, I'm proactively blowing my nose and hoping to <laughs> anything, set it anything. off. <laughs> anyway, yeah. All right, no, I, I'm in much better form, much better form. Okay. Let's improve so, our mood by talking about security. <laughs> well, we just might. No, so this is, our, as I say, our third try at this new format. Um, I think I'm getting into the, into the buzz here because... I did the entire set of show notes from start to finish in two hours today, which is oh, nice. way, way improved. The scroll bar so looks a little bigger. I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah, it's, it's to some extent, the things I've chosen to add, I can be more wordy with, and the things I've chosen to ignore are just not stressing me out. So it's, it's actually, I, I think it's better. Excellent. So the first segment is basically long, it's basically instantaneous feedback follow-ups, and also these long-running stories that that don't really fit into a bi-weekly, that just sort of go on and on. Okay. So I figured we update ourselves on those and then we get stuck into the shorter stuff. So the first ongoing story, which is going to be with us for years, is the whole genre of bug that was started off famously by Spectre and Meltdown. So yeah, this you has promised us that would be the song that never ends. Yeah, well, it will end, but it's going to its length is going to be Intel's product pipeline to some extent. Okay. Um, and that's not short, right? You know, for for a ship the size of Intel to turn around and fundamentally rethink chip chip architecture without a regression in performance is really difficult because they can't they can't ship a chip that's slower than the one they shipped five years ago. Like, <laughs> can't do that, right? Anyway, all of these problems revolve around the many many tricks Intel have been doing to try speed up the chips by taking shortcuts various caches and those kind of things. And again, this new bug that's come to light, and notice it has a fire extinguisher icon, by the way. So it has a fancy pants name. It's called Cache Out. Intel have patched it. 
And the key takeaway yet again, and this has been true of pretty much all of the Spectre Meltdown type bugs, uh, with the exception that we needed a browser patch for one of the two original ones because they were exploitable by JavaScript. But since then, it's all only affected situations where two processes belonging to different people share a single CPU. So in our home world, that would mean that the bad guy would already have to be in our computer to be able to attack us using these techniques. And if they're already in our computer, they don't need these techniques. But if they, uh, in a shared server environment, that's where you care, right? Precisely. So the biggest place where this matters is the cloud. So <laughs> if you have a VM sitting in the cloud, you are by definition sharing hardware with everyone. And there are people you don't know, don't trust, and have no relationship with. Right. And that's the risk, which is why I believe you got it too. We got an email from our uh, cloud provider that we both happen to be using at the moment, which is DigitalOcean, telling us that we are in the process of patching our VMs and I, or sorry, our, our hardware. And um, I also have some VMs with a different provider. And I also got an email from them saying, yeah. so BartB.ie will be down briefly um, for a reboot because BartB.ie, hang on. Actually, no, Bartby won't be affected by that. It's not a different... Never mind, I'm thinking out loud. Anyway, yes, <laughs> other providers I use um, are also doing server reboots. Um, I have to say something nice about DigitalOcean there that I I liked the level of detail and the explanation level that they gave us. I thought it was very well written. They're really good at documenting stuff. They really are. Uh, when I need to do stuff in work that has nothing to do with DigitalOcean... I will often, whenever I see a link come back, now I might Google like, how do I do X on CentOS 7? And when the answer in the Google list, when any one of the answers in the Google list is a link to DigitalOcean, I'll just go for it. Yeah, yeah, because now you know that they're they're just really good. They, it, it, they're really good. They've I've got me out of a whole a bunch of, of problems. Yeah, I found a lot of documentation where it's like, oh, let me just go over there. And once I realized that the question answers I was getting from DigitalOcean were good for DigitalOcean problems, you're right, I've done the same thing. I've done a Google and go, oh, look, there it is. It's DigitalOcean. Okay, yeah. boom. Yeah, because Linux hosting is Linux hosting, right? It's really matter whose who's cloud it's on. It's still, you know, CentOS 7 is CentOS 7, so it's all yeah. good. Anyway. So basically, don't panic. So for us, regular end, end users, no panic, and the cloud providers are on it, so no panic. So all in all, no panic. Good. Uh, social media companies continue their ongoing struggle to tackle the myriad problems affecting their services. Um, Tinder have taken a very good proactive step, I think, by adding a panic button. Um, so the idea would be that you... You would be able to call for help while on a Tinder date, which doesn't seem like a bad idea. Um, That's Twitter kind of like what, what Uber did a while ago. Yes, very much inspired, by, or very much from the same playbook, exactly. So in the old days um, where you had somebody call you partway through a date to see, so you had an out, now you've got a, a, a hmm. programmatic way of doing it. Yes, and you can proactively do it instead of having to wait for someone to call you. That, that was always a classic trick, all right, ring me, and then depending on whether I want an excuse or not, I will use you as an excuse. <laughs> um, Twitter has banned the deepfakes, but only those, quote, likely to cause harm. So they're inventing a whole gray area to go judge for themselves. That could mm. get interesting. What could possibly and go wrong? Yeah. And Facebook have added a new interface for showing users all of the stuff they collect about them when they're not on Facebook. 
So we have known for a long time that if you are a Facebook user, you are being tracked all across the internet because every time you see a Facebook like button, you're being tracked across the internet. But it's actually even more insidious than that. Facebook actually have partnerships with other websites. Even if you don't see a like button, they're still tracking you and sending this stuff back to Facebook. Facebook have now created a UI where you can see what it is they have gathered about you and you can, uh, I believe you can delete it. And I think you get a little bit of control over what gets collected over you in future. So there's a link in the show notes to an article from Intico.com where they show you where this interface is and sort of talk you through it. Uh, I'm not a Facebook user, so I'm a bit out of my depth here, but the link looks good. So, um, um, and there's also... A- uh, uh- Alistair Jenks posted in our Slack at podfeed.com slash Slack in the Security Bits channel that uh, Luminar, they've been sending information to Facebook. So it's not just You're websites. You're stealing my thunder here. That's deep dive number one. With oh, okay. Alistair Sorry. Up. Sorry, I didn't read ahead. Yes. Uh, you know, we'll definitely talk about that. Um, okay. Well, I was just correcting. That it's not just websites. They're all doing it. Yes, exactly. All sorts of partners. And one of the things, actually, the scarier ones they partner with are banks, Mm. which is why when you buy something on a credit card or in a store, you can go online and find ads for the same kind of stuff. It's like, what the how? (laughs) Right? Because that's really into the... And that's where these theories that like these things are turning on your mic. That's where these theories come from. It's because of all the other insidious ways they have of tracking you that we're so perplexed, we assume they must be spying on us via our mic but no they're spying i don't think they're listening i think they're in my mind is where they are <laughs> to, to a large extent yes what it feels like, they are it? their expertise is in knowing us better than we know ourselves that is their product uh similarly there's a good explainer from naked security about the new feature and how you can control it and because I had nowhere else to tag him into the show notes, just two related stories I think we should mention. Uh, Facebook are being fined a little over half a billion to settle a face-tagging lawsuit where they were basically abusing facial recognition according to U.S. law. I can't remember which state it was. It's one of your states has really strict laws on facial recognition, and hmm. Facebook thought they could get I think it's Idaho. Uh, I- Ohio, sorry. Um, and Facebook thought they could get away with it, and turns out they couldn't. Um, hmm. so settle that for half a billion dollars, which isn't bad. And the MasterCard CEO has spoken out after having left the Libra Alliance thing. And he wrote a whole big op-ed basically saying the whole thing stinks and he thinks they're up to no good. And I think the money quote, if you'll excuse the terrible pun, when you don't understand how money gets made, it gets made in ways you don't like. <laughs> yes, CEO of MasterCard, you have understood Facebook perfectly. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so the other ongoing story is the battle browsers are continuing to fight to both protect their browsers from abuse and also in more recent times their plug-in ecosystem from abuse. There's been some developments in that. Uh, Mozilla has banned Firefox extensions that execute remote code. That seems like a good security step. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. They hadn't already done that? Well, no, because there's legitimate reasons to do that, right? It's a way of getting no, functionality uh, without needing software right. updates. Not right. Why? How? What is it for? Um, every single web page is remote code that is executing. Every time you download JavaScript from the internet, you are downloading code and executing it. It's not arbitrary code injected by the attacker. It's remote code so not Mm -hmm. 
So any website that downloads a plugin that downloads a file and then executes it is not allowed anymore. That's remote code execution. So why, not why does that not undo everything good that you just said that remote code execution does? It doesn't undo it. Basically, what it's basically saying is Mozilla is tightening. There are um, there are many many legitimate reasons to do remote code execution. It's not it's not it's only malicious if it's remote code execution that's unintended. That's the choice of an attacker, right? Um, all code execution is potentially dangerous, but it's only, it's okay as long as it's code you wanted to run. And this is the same is true of remote code. But basically, Mozilla are just saying, look, it's really hard to tell the difference between a bug that's accidentally let malicious remote code run versus intended behavior. So since plugins are such a privileged position, plugins get to see everything going on in that tab. And that means that they're particularly privileged. So let's protect that by making that privileged code be really restricted from doing things that are otherwise legitimate. So I'm really not uh, able to parse what this means uh, because I don't really understand now that you're saying everything is executing, or most things are executing remote code if it blocks remote code execution. Okay. For example, so, okay, sorry, let me get my question out. Let me get my question out. Let me get my question out. I waited a long time to see if it would get cured sorry, sorry. out. Uh, my question is uh, something like Grammarly, for example, seems mm -hmm. uh, that's a thing that checks your grammar and your typing as your spelling. Would that be that? Is that executing remote code? Probably not. What it's doing is sending stuff to the server and getting an answer back, but it's not executing the answer. It's getting it's sending sending and receiving data, not sending and receiving code. Okay. Okay. What about one password? Same. Okay. What would be an example? Do you know of any that would be executing remote code that would fit nope. into this kind of category? Uh, what? No, and there's no way to know, right? Because it's down to... So if you're a developer, you can either choose to put all of your code into your plugin, or you can choose to say, well, I don't want to have to do a software update every time I change my mind. So why don't I get the plugin to proactively go and fetch fresh copies of the code from the server, and that way we don't have to push software updates? Okay. So hmm. there's no way for us as end users to know. And if it, what this does is it makes plugin engineers engineer their plugins in a more secure way. It shouldn't affect us, the end users, except that our plugins should be more secure. Okay. I just followed the link that you put to Sophos and to Naked Security, and they uh, so far it's banned 197 extensions, 129 of which were published by one B2B software developer to Ring, and it has something to do with Cisco telephony. So that's just kind of interesting. Huh. Doesn't sound like we're going to necessarily see it on normal stuff. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, basically it's... The rules used to be really loose, and in lots of different ways in the last couple of months, if you sort of look at the trend, if you look at the forest, this is a small tree, but if you look at the forest, it's basically Firefox going, and that's not allowed anymore, and that's not allowed anymore, <laughs> and you have to do that now, and yeah, and the end result is everything is just getting tighter, everything is getting more controlled, everything is getting more secure, so I guess yeah, yeah. It's another tree has been planted. It's, it's, sort of like what... Uh, Mac OS has been doing, right? Just yeah, exactly. Yes. Swaths exactly. of forest and, at a time, but then a few trees. <laughs> yeah, I mean that comes very much in stops and starts, right? <laughs> Every time a major version of the OS comes out, it's like -tunk! oh look, there's a few acres. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um 
a bunch of problems with fraud have prompted Google to put a freeze on a whole bunch of plugins in their store. Now, this generally is affecting plugins that take in-app purchases, which I didn't even know was a thing, but apparently it is a thing. But this is really affecting a lot of Chrome developers, and there's very little detail. I, th- I don't think Google want to give away how the fraud works because that will probably make everything worse. Hmm. But they've basically massively put the brakes on, which is, I guess, at least being proactive is a good takeaway. And then the other thing that's worth pointing out is that Chrome 80 has been released. And yeah, it has security updates, of course. But what's interesting is that it continues its crackdown on cookies, getting ever more stricter about the cookies it will and won't honor. And it's also closing the door on notification spam. Those really annoying pop-ups where a website says, Hi, I'd like to send you push notifications. I, I cannot think of a single site I would ever want that to be yes. And I get that Gmail. all the time. What? No, I don't want on Gmail either. I don't want okay, any you might not, but many, many people do, right? If you're using web-based productivity apps, like calendaring and email, and you don't have a desktop client, you, you live in the, you're in, the, you're, you're one of these modern youths. You don't mm. believe in apps. You only these believe in websites. Today. <laughs> then having a website that is basically an app be able to send you push notifications is actually useful. And the okay, same for the not, not TechCrunch and CNN and blah, blah, blah. Right. Leave me alone. Leave exactly, me alone. exactly. And so the, the change here is that instead of it being a pop-up, it's just going to be a little banner at the top that pops in and then disappears again, like the, like the blocked pop-ups are now a very subtle little thing. Okay, Apple copy from Google, please. They are, and so are Firefox. Oh, good. Yes, all the browsers are heading this way, which is fantastic. Yes. Uh, oh, uh, maybe I should have put the next story in here as well. But anyway, Google are continuing to tighten up their Android app store. 24 dangerous apps were pulled from the Play Store, which is good. Yeah. Uh, also, continuing developments in the Fido web Authn world, um, Google have launched an open source project to allow people to make their own hardware tokens. Ooh. So basically, YubiKeys based on open source specifications via Google. That is wonderful to see. That will hopefully mean more security keys. Yeah. Um, We talked a lot last year, mainly around about the summer, about American cell phone carriers tracking your location data. Well, they have that anyway, right? Because they know where your phone is talking to cell towers. Mm -hmm. What they're not supposed to do with it is sell it. And they were caught doing that last year and then they promised they'd stop and then six a few months later there was a follow-up report saying no no no, they're still doing it. and then they said no no no, we really really are stopping this time and as far as we know they actually did the second time around well there's been a development in that um there were congress sent a letter to the fcc asking well how's your investigation going into this shenanigans and they got an answer from ajit pai which is Interesting and annoyingly vague at the same time. So in his answer, he said that a number of companies have been found to be in breach of federal law. Oh, interesting. He wouldn't even say who he's investigating, let alone who it's been found as breaching the law. And even though they have found that some of them definitely have breached the law, they haven't yet decided if they're going to bother actually enforcing said law. So, okay. Meanwhile, in Europe, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner, 
And the reason it's the Irish Data Protection Commissioner is because Google is headquartered in Ireland. So the Irish Data Protection Commissioner is the GDPR authority over Google in Europe. Uh, They have launched a new investigation to determine whether or not Google's processing of location data is compliant with the GDPR. So maybe you'll save us. (laughs) It's a big test case. Yeah. Uh, Very interesting to see how that goes. Okay, so that's a, sort of a catch-up on the uh, perennial evergreens. So let's do, we have two deep dives today. The first deep dive is a collection of stories that I just thought needed to go together. Hardware and software caught spying on users and selling their data. Hi, Alistair. Um, <laughs> so since last we met, a bunch of hardware and software vendors have been caught with their finger in the proverbial data cookie jar. So the first ones to make the news are Ring, who are now owned by Amazon. The EFF published some research on the Ring app for Android, which showed them sending a whole bunch of personally identifiable information to at least four trackers. Now, the research only covered the Android app. It doesn't say anything about the iOS app. So I have no idea whether Apple's more strenuous rules have provided some sort of protection. We, it's not that this doesn't affect the iOS app. It's that we don't. No. What we do know is that Ring are up to shenanigans on Android, which is deeply disappointing. Um, I was really hoping that Amazon would be a better steward. I expected this of the Mm. of the company Ring because of my experiences with them and them flat out lying to me in writing. But I really hope that that Amazon would be a better steward of that. You know, you and me both. Because their hardware is nice. I want I want to live in a world where I could buy a ring doorbell without feeling ache. Right. I don't, so I haven't. Um, the next company to get caught out, and in this case, I think they weren't being malicious. In hind- when, when the dust settled, the most plausible explanation is this wasn't malicious, but initially this looked very, very, very suspicious. Um, the driver for Wacom Tablets was found to be sending information about what apps you were running to Wacom, or actually not to Wacom, to Google. Hmm. Um, this all came to light because a user was in the process of clicking next, 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 next on the installer, and for some reason they paused for a moment before clicking I agree, and they asked themselves what should be a really obvious question. Hang on a sec. Why does a device that is essentially a mouse need a privacy policy at all. Why am I agreeing <laughs> to a privacy policy? Why does this thing need a privacy policy? Yeah. So he went, a reading. <laughs> it turns out that the reason is because it's collecting all the apps that are open and everything you're doing and sending it off to Google Analytics. Huh. Now, Wacom followed up by cre- releasing details of the what and the why, which included, in fact, started with an apology for not being clearer about this. Basically, what they're doing is they are collecting anonymized information on what people are doing with their Wacom tablets so that they can understand when things crash, what's going on. This is basically telemetry data. And it's going to Google Analytics, not because it's being used for advertising, but because Google basically have a statistical platform that is a way for companies to have software as a service. So this isn't Google ad tracking that's being sent to. It's Wacom's private analytics that it's being sent to. It just is software as a service 
that they're buying off Google, who are a provider of such things. Hmm. So this is, it's quite normal for telemetry. It's also the case that this came to light because the guy read the privacy policy. So they're not being in any way untoward here, right? It is upfront in the privacy policy. He's just the only person who's bothered to read it. Like, he must be the only person who's bothered to read it because no one noticed <laughs> this until now. Right, right. And so, basically, Wacom will come back and explain what they're doing, which seems eminently reasonable to me. It seems eminently sane. And they've promised to do better about making sure that it's, you know, they're clearer about it in future and they apologize for the confusion. Hmm. So it seems okay to me. I think that's all's well that ends well on that one. But why does it have to be Google Analytics? Well, you don't want to run your own because then you will make terrible mistakes that compromise everyone's security. But Google does things with your data. I mean, you're, you're handing no, it to no. a third party. Well, no, if you take part in... Google have services where they can pay you for data, but Google also provides services where you pay them for a service, in which case they're not doing that. Maybe. Well, no, 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 not maybe. Google do... Like, Google no, I'm have saying an maybe entire... they bought it. Maybe they bought the service in a way that it wasn't going anywhere else. Okay, for, uh, from my reading of what they have said and from my reading of what uh, Naked Security have said about what they have said, it is, it is the, the latter. Okay. It is the software as a service, not, not contributing generic. to Google's tracking. Oh, okay. All right. So, like I say, this, on, when more details emerged, this went from being awuga awuga to, oh, oh, I don't know. Okay. They could have been a bit better about telling us, but that's actually okay. So that ended well, thankfully. Now we move on to software. Um, so the first thing to cross my radar in terms of software was a joint investigation by Motherboard and PC Mag, which revealed that uh, free comes at a terrible price when it comes to a vast AVG uh, antivirus. They own a subsidiary called Jumpsoft, which brags about selling real-time, highly accurate click data following people all around the internet. And Jumpsoft gets that information from people using AVG, or sorry, using Avast antivirus and browser plugins. Hmm. So that's why they're free. They're so selling it. you would have thought, though, that, I mean, Avast has a product that costs money as well. And usually, yes, usually when we find companies that have a free and a paid for app, you're like, okay, they're making their money off the paid for people with these extra features. And so therefore they can try to sucker you in with this free version and maybe later you'll pay them. But you can't even trust that path now. Yeah, I, I guess they weren't getting enough people upgrading from the free to the paid or they felt they could double dip or something. But Yeah, greedy. Yeah. Either way. Uh, How do you make and sure? And has been pointed out. <laughs> yeah has been pointed out by others, the chances are a Avast is by no means alone in doing this. As a general rule, if it's free or underpriced, like at an unrealistic price, it's probably, as I coined the phrase, free P, free in exchange for your personal information. So be wary of these things. And because an AV gets to have such privileged access to your system, I feel extremely uncomfortable running AV I'm not paying for. Right. Well, right. that isn't that isn't part of Windows. I mean, to, to me, Windows Defender has solved the AV problem. Just use Defender and call it a day. I remember when Clamex AV went to paid, and you didn't want to pay it though. Yeah, because there's, there's no actual need for it in the Mac. 
Yeah, but you had been running it when they cost charged money. That's when you stopped. But they were open source, you see. They were just a GUI around the, an open source AV product. And I was like, hey, open source I trust. So, it's, you know, so again, it's follow the money. So that's sort of the open source is sort of the um, Wikipedia model, right? It's, right, but they started charging money, and that's when you stopped using them. So you just said you wouldn't use an AV that didn't charge you money. But in, when they started charging you money, that's when you stopped using it. So I'm just calling you. Right, because I don't think we need an AV on the Mac at all. Okay, but you had been running it, that's all. I had been because it was free, right? Why not? (laughs) You're making both sides of the same argument there. (laughs) No, I'm saying, okay, follow the money is what I'm saying. And when you followed the money on something open source, that was fine. And when you follow the money on something from a for-profit company that's free, that's not fine. So follow the money has always been my argument and always will be my argument. So the final one. Yes, the final one then, sorry, was uh, brought to our attention by Alistair Jenks, C-K-A-R-J, on the Podfeet Slack, where everyone should hang out. Um, Luminar 4 were also caught sending data to uh, well, four different, uh, or sorry, to, to, to Facebook in that, in that case. And I'm still not entirely sure if that is also... Um, Apparently, it is anonymized, but we've no real way to check because it's all being sent encrypted. Hmm. So it's not clear if that is an example. Um, I've just noticed that my show notes don't contain the latest information because I chopped and changed from having this be a normal story. And at some point, a paragraph has gotten lost. And in that paragraph, I said that Luminar updated their statement to say that it's just telemetry and there's, it's, it's all anonymized and it's perfectly safe. And that well, may be why? true. But why do they need to send it at all? Why do they need well, to because, send my photography stuff to Facebook? That's, I, I, I'm going to go on my soapbox here for a minute about this company. This company, over time, keeps changing their name, changing the name of the products. They sell products and then 15 minutes later, completely drop the product, leave people in the lurch, come out with a new version. They say, no, no, this time we won't change it. It happened three times before I gave up on them. Then they became Luminar, changed their name again. They were MacFun. And now they're doing something oh, yeah. like this. I, I can't stand this company. I don't trust them. I, that's the thing. They're, making, they're asking us to trust them, and I'm not sure they've earned it. Well, yeah, they've, the opposite. They have not earned my trust. They have pulled the rug out from under users too many times. Uh, I really liked the marketing guy that I was working with with them. And I actually, while I was in San Diego, I made a point of going at taking him out for a beer so that I could tell him I thought the company was garbage and I wasn't going to work with him anymore. But I really thought he was fun. (laughs) I mean, that's that's how I felt about it. I liked the guy. But uh, yeah, we met over at Ballast Point and had a beer. And I told him, I said, no, I'm not I'm not covering your company anymore. This is too many times. So wow. I have no love lost for these guys at all. Well, you've, this whole story has saved me a lot of bother because I've been thinking, am I missing out? Should I be checking out Luminar? Should I be staying with Adobe for my photo stuff? Uh, I may not stay with Adobe, but I, that's one off the list. Yeah, and um, Stephen Getz had had really been trying to uh, to use Luminar, but uh, he went with, in version 3, they promised a bunch of stuff in version 4, or they promised a bunch of stuff that would be in version 3, their digital mm-hmm. asset management. Then they yeah. c- turned around and went, oh, no, you're going to need version 4 for that. And then when version 4 came out, it was some AI features. They didn't actually do the work they said they were going to do. So, And from what I understand, the actual dis- digital assets management that did eventually ship was terrible yeah other than that i love these guys yeah, yeah. so yeah let's let's leave that there yeah next 
Deep Dive. Oh, I forgot to label it in the show notes. It should say Deep Dive 2, the Clearview AI controversy. I tried to make this a normal news story and I couldn't shrink it, so I, I made it a little bit bigger. So there is a US startup called Clearview AI, and they have been in the news a lot in the last two weeks. They have built an AI-powered search engine, which allows photographs to be matched to social media profiles. So the idea is you input an arbitrary photograph into this search engine, and out will pop a list of of social media profiles. Basically, who's this? Oh, look, it's Bboushots on Twitter, is the logic and theory of this. That is obviously an extremely powerful de-anonymizing tool. Uh, They are not making this available. Wait, why do you call it a de-anonymizing tool? Okay, so you're walking up the street and you take a random photo on your iPhone. Those people are effectively anonymous. You have no way to tie that back to a real person. Now you do. Okay. It allows you to take any random stranger and de-anonymize them. Okay. So that's why it's that's what's being referred to as de-anonymization because okay. being out in a crowd no longer means that so people there, don't know who you I, are. I don't know about where you live, but where I live, uh, if you're out in public, that's that's the deal. You're in but public. But it's not the deal. No, no, no. It, it, uh, we're not talking about legalities here, right? It is not the case that you can walk up the street and know who everyone is. You're legally entitled to try find out, but you don't just know, right? It's a fundamental change in society where being outside means that everyone is, it's not that they're allowed to take your picture and they're allowed to know who you are. It's that they can just instantly map you back to someone. That's not how the world is now. That's a change in how our life experience is, a huge change in how our life experience is. Hmm. Right, you're walking up the street. Seem like it to me. Uh, oh, this is okay, keep this going. is fundamental change in our whole society. But anyway, the point is they're not making this publicly available, so it's not it's not that this is out there for all of us to just use. Because the obvious next step is you add in AOR and you're walking up the street and everyone has a label over them, right? That's where this is obviously headed eventually, um, if not regulated. But anyway, that's not the point. Um, that's not what they're doing. What they're doing instead is they're not making this tool available to the public. It's not like Google.com where you can go to this search engine and use it. They're selling it, um, not to the public, but to law enforcement. And that has raised a whole bunch of privacy concerns, particularly around um, false positives um, and people's ability to in any way protect themselves from false positives, because a lot of times you don't even know the police departments are using this kind of AI, which generally doesn't have very good success rates, like 80% or something, which is fine on a whim, but kind of dangerous to go, you know, raid people's houses on. Well, so my understanding uh, of the way the facial recognition has been used so far is that they use it to get it's a lead, but it is not like, hey, I've got this face and I think this is, um, you know, Bart was the one who broke into this house. Therefore, I'm going to go bust down the door. It's like, okay, so now I've got this piece of information. I've got I was able to get uh, where he was because he was using a bike a cycling tracking mm. app. So I figured out the route he was on. Here's his face in front of that. That gives me enough information together to start doing an investigation of Bart specifically for this crime. That is the scrupulous and proper way of using a tool like this. Um, there are plenty of anecdotes, unfortunately, showing that the department, the, the police departments who are using it because they're using it secretly are not being quite so scrupulous. So one particularly stupid example was someone said yeah the guy looked a bit like some movie star i'd never heard of so they put a picture of the movie star into the app to try find who it might be 
Yeah. That's what's wrong yeah, with that. Anyway, anyway, that's 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 look. I don't. I. I I don't want to go down a rabbit hole of the, 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 the pros and cons. I just want to keep to the facts on this one. So the facts are that there are privacy concerns raised by this. Whether you or I agree with them isn't really the point. So um, there's, this, there is another angle to this story uh, I, that I don't see in your text. So I hope I'm not stealing your thunder. Uh, oh, maybe it's, it's the second link, but you don't have any text about it. And that is that Google and Facebook and YouTube are all like, wait a minute, you can't scrape our photos. We're, we're busy selling that information. Well, actually, that's literally the next words I was trying to get in the last five minutes. The database was built by scraping social media sites, a direct violation of those sites' terms of service, and hence the U.S. Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Unsurprisingly, social media companies are suing Clearview AI. So they scraped all of these websites, which is explicitly against their terms of use. Um, and terms of use are enshrined in U.S. law, which is a whole other kettle of fish. Um, certainly not something I'm in favor of, but it is nonetheless the fact of the current state of play. So this whole thing is off to court. So basically, the point being, this company exists. They are being used by law enforcement. It is controversial. It has raised the attention of civil liberties groups, and it has resulted in court cases. So this is going to run and run and run. Okay, so next section, action alerts. These are things where I want people to pay attention because you may have to do something. Um, first up, Apple have issued patches for, well, everything. Um, <laughs> and as usual, they include critical security fixes. But I do want to draw special attention to three things. So we talked a few weeks ago about new cool parental controls in iOS 13.3, which were immediately defeated by a bug, which allowed the kids to work around the parental controls. Well, <laughs> the workaround has now been uh, patched up. So those parental controls are actually controlling. Wait, which, which version? 13.3, uh, if I can copy and paste correctly. Um, I I... Okay. Oh, okay, okay. So this is 13.3.1 that fixes the bug that was in 13.3. Got it. Yes. Similarly, we talked about the U1 chip and the fact that for legal reasons, because the U1 chip is only legally permitted in certain places because of the frequency spectrum and all that, that whenever you use the U1 chip, your iPhone has to check its location. It doesn't send it anywhere, but it does have to check. And that was causing the little location services icon to flash up, which was freaking people out. And so Apple have now added a new toggle under location services where you can disable the use of location for networking. And that will disable the U1 chip as well. Yeah. So what do you lose if you turn that off? You lose the U1 chip. So know, at the moment, very little. Right. I, I, I know some things. Like so for example, today, the, if I'm sorry, I keep talking right on top of you. If I'm if I'm near Steve, I'll get a different kind of symbol in AirDrop that it'll know that Steve's right next to me. That's one of the examples. But I was wondering if there's anything else that it depends on or that depends to, on it. Today, not that I'm aware of, unless there's third party apps leveraging it, leveraging it through APIs. But really today it's um, and it's it's not just nearbyness, it's also directionality. So if you basically if you point away from steve his icon will get smaller and if you turn around and physically face him your his icon will get bigger it's so it's directional and oh, i didn't notice the size i've noticed little dots around it showing that you're rotating it's kind of fun yeah so to, well in my experience has been that basically the icon seems to grow like like you know that old dark hover effect 
But yeah, it's basically it's about telling you. So if you're the idea is if you're in a conference with like twenty kabillion iPhones, you'll have a better chance of airdropping to the right person. It also works at home. Like when I bring up AirDrop now, it sees my my MacBook Pro as the first thing. It's automatic. It's like, yeah, I know that's the one you want. It's got the little U1 dots around it. Yeah, actually, that's really handy. And you know, I, I use that myself uh, because I often have my iMac and my laptop. And then depending on where I point my phone, one of them will jump up instead of the other, which is kind of nice. Yeah. But yeah, that's all you lose for now. Rumor has it we'll have these tile competitors. Right. And that would be a big loss, but yeah. There's also no danger in having it on because this it's it's using your location, not sharing your location. So that's right different. And then the other one that was fixed that seems like it really should be updated is a flaw in sudo. Oh, sudo is yeah, sudo is a command that lets regular users get root power. You don't want bugs in sudo. No, yikes. Oh. Yeah, patchy, so patchy, patch, patch. That must have been not just in Mac OS. That must have existed in Linux and they found it and now Apple's patched their version of it? That, precisely. Basically, there, there, there was an issue in the open source pseudo and that was patched in the open source world and Apple have now brought that patch into okay. their Mac version. It has also been the start of the month. So we have critical Android flaws patched in Google's February bulletin. So if you have an Android phone that can be updated, do so because you've got some important security stuff to get. And if your phone can't be updated, reconsider your choices. <laughs> if you're a user of WhatsApp, particularly the WhatsApp for Mac desktop, you definitely want to get the latest update because there was a fairly nasty bug that was letting local files escape from your Mac through the WhatsApp app, which oh. isn't good. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know how many people use the desktop WhatsApp app, but there you go. And finally, if you use Philips Hue bulbs, make sure they are fully patched by opening up the Philips uh, utility and just making sure that none of them are looking for an update because there was some fairly nasty vulnerabilities in the firmware which Philips have patched and you just need to make sure that all of your bulbs are up to date. So I went in and looked at that, and my Philips Hue bridge is updated, but the bulbs don't appear to do any updating. I'm not sure. Unless if... the bridge does it for you. Right, right. I'm hoping that's the case, because there doesn't appear to be any way for me to talk to the bulbs directly. Because they're not Wi-Fi b- bulbs. They talk to the bridge, and then the bridge talks to the network. Yes, so... I believe it's, from my reading of the story, if the bulbs needed your attention, they'd have a little exclamation icon when you look at them in the app, and then you'd have the ability to action whatever it is that they were whining about. Yeah. Okay. So if there was no whining, you're good. Okay. Okay, so next section is worthy warnings. These may or may not apply to you. Uh, If they do, then you should probably dig deeper, and if they don't, carry on. Uh, the first one is Twitter released a, a notification, an announcement, uh, basically saying that one of our APIs was abused through a bug, which happened to be in their Android app. But that's not particularly the important part. The point is the API was open to abuse and was proactively abused. And what this API allowed the bad guys to do is to map phone numbers to Twitter accounts. Uh, But this was only for people who enable the feature in Twitter, which is to allow people to find you by your phone number. Um, In theory, that should only ever allow people who have your number in their phone book to find you. But 
there was a problem with the implementation and it was able to be used to actually find people's phone numbers, which is definitely not how it's supposed to work. What, do I uh, remember correctly that um, was Twitter one of the companies that was making you give your phone number for two-factor authentication or something and then they were using it? Or was that for something else or was that Facebook? They're all blended yes, together. The second, the second, I'm afraid. Uh, well, not I'm afraid. Well, no, that's good. Yes. Yeah, no, Twitter weren't caught with their fingers in that particular cookie jar to the best of my knowledge. Okay. Um, so if you did have yourself searchable that way, and I have a horrible feeling that's the default if you've added a phone number, but I, I can't tell for sure because I haven't set up a Twitter account in quite some time. Either way, Naked Security have some nice instructions to help you find the relevant screen where you can tell whether or not your phone number was made available in this way. And if it was, you need to be on the watch for spear phishing style attacks. And if, you know, they also tell you basically how you can turn off these settings, which is probably something you want to do, maybe regardless of whether or not you are caught up in this. Probably no harm to have a wee check in those settings. Next up, a warning about people who use Trello. Apparently, it's very popular these days. I haven't, I haven't succumbed. Um, lots of people seem to forget to secure their Trello boards and then post really sensitive data, which ends up being indexed by search engines. Um, as demonstrated by security researchers, basically, there is lots of scary stuff exposed on Trello by mistake. If you're a Trello user, be careful so that you're not in the next dump of data. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, if you're a Google Photos user, you may want to be aware that Google accidentally shared your photos to random strangers sometimes, maybe. <laughs> so that may open you up to... That's a little broad. Well, it's some sort of feature that was supposed to be used for sharing, but they ended up sharing with the wrong people. So you ended up sort of emailing your photos to random strangers. Oh, right, right, right. So it wasn't like a broad-based... Uh, everybody who had photos in Google Photos got shared out. It was like, I tried to share it at Bart, but it actually sent them to Alistair instead. It was. It sounded more programmatic, mistake-ish. Buggy is what yeah, it sounded buggy. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just, if there was, you know, if you have photos in there, maybe of, of bills or something, it potentially could leave you open. It's probably not the biggest deal in the world, but if you're worried, have a read of the stories linked in the show notes. Um, and see what you make of it. Uh, Naked Security are warning about a PayPal SMS scam that you should avoid falling for. Basic rules, you know, just because it came in over SMS doesn't mean you should be less suspicious than if it came in over email, would be my advice. And because we live on planet Earth, three guesses what evil people are now using to try to trick people into clicking on things. Coronavirus. Mm. So just, you know, shields up, basically. Shields up, that's a good and if you're a U.S. customer of Sprint, you may want to have a read of an article on Krebs on security because they accidentally exposed what should have been a private support portal to the world, which then got indexed by search engines. And as part of people's support cases, they would have shared private information, which then ended up being made public. So that's depending on whether or not you've had an interaction with Sprint support, this may or may not affect you. So details in show notes. So. Notable news. Apple engineers have proposed a way to standardize two-factor authentication via SMS, and Google are on board. So this is, on the one hand, very simplistic. It's 
how do we format the text message so that both human beings and computers can understand them? And if every website does it the same way, then it should make it a little bit more difficult to trick people into putting the wrong thing into the wrong place. And it should just make it a little bit more robust. Bearing in mind, of course, that SMS is an inherently insecure medium and you should only use SMS for two-factor auth if you have no other choice. Yeah, you seem to kind of poo-poo this story when somebody, I think it was, um, uh, oh shoot, I can't remember who it was who posted it in our Slack, that you you seem to come down kind of hard that this was dumb because it was I, SMS. Then I, I didn't mean to come across that it was dumb. It's just, I, I think, it was, I thought it was being overhyped that people are saying, oh, this is amazing. Finally, two-factor is secure over SMS. And it's like, no, 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 no. This doesn't make two-factor over SMS secure. It just makes it less insecure. Okay, so it's, so st- it's still a good news story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, this can do no bad. Okay. Uh, this, this can do absolutely no bad. Unless, conceivably, hypothetically, the only way this could be negative if, if, if a whole bunch of people who were using OTP or some actually secure 2FA decided to switch to SMS. That would be bad. But other than that, this can do no harm. Okay. All right. And I don't think that's a real risk. Um, but it doesn't mean that suddenly SMS is fine. No, it's right. still the lowest of the two FAs. Right, but it got its fruit is hanging a little less low. Yes, assuming people take Apple up on this and start to implement this spec. Right. You know, it's positive. Like, it's good to see Apple engaging with the community, engaging with Google, working together. These are good things. Right, right. It's still a, a symptom of the problem, but until the real problem gets fixed. Yeah, and as long as, and there are lots of organizations who don't give you choice, right? They they don't let you choose a better form of two FA. So if your choice is no two FA or SMS two FA, well, SMS two FA still wins hands down. Right, right. But it loses every other match, <laughs> but it wins that. Um, Amazon are the latest to release their transparency report, and uh, it shows a slight decline in government requests to Amazon for data, which is a trend I wasn't expecting to see. Oh. Not a huge plummet, but you know, hmm. something. And I'm afraid to say that um, in the United States of America, the Department of Homeland Security have found an interesting interpretation of the law and are using what they consider to be a loophole and other people consider to be very creative lawyering that may or may not be legal to get around a court ruling saying they're not allowed to use location data to track people. Um, So they've got and bought it as a commercial service and they were like, well, if it's available to buy, we can just buy it. We're not doing it as a government. We're doing it as a customer because we're paying for it. I'm not a lawyer. I won't go into the details, but if you're interested, that's happening. Details in show notes. And I I think the important point, um, the reason that becomes quite controversial is because they're in charge of border control. Yes. Yes. So. As we come closer to the end, top tips. Believe it or not, January 28th is apparently Data Privacy Day. I'm not entirely sure who declared that fact, but the internet seemed to agree. Maybe that's uh, the day I should pick to send uh, the letter I've been working on to my financial institution telling them why they should stop using SMS for two-factor authentication. Yes, but that would mean waiting a year. Oh, it is. Never mind. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, the, no, lots of articles came out, and these are just some of the ones I thought were, were nice. So five ways to be a bit, a bit safer this data privacy day from Naked Security. Nice general tips that are not too onerous. 
Um, five things you should do on your Mac and one thing you shouldn't to keep your data safe from iMore. Again, sensible, simple things, not too onerous. And also from iMore, iPhone privacy, how to lock down and delete threats to your online information. Again, sensible, simple instruction. And uh, arguably also related, but somewhat different, Tidbits had a nice article, Alternative Ways to Protect Yourself from Being Spearfished, um, which again, simple, sensible instructions from Tidbits. Cool. Uh, I want to, before we wrap up then, I just want to leave you with some stories that sort of I thought were interesting. They're not so much news as they are analysis. Um if you're interested, have a read. So basically, uh, one from Wired, I monitor my teen's electronics and you should too. It's a thoughtful, long article sort of outlining, you know, the the risks, you know, the, the obvious privacy implications and sort of helping parents to grapple with what is a very much gray issue, right? It's it's not, oh yeah, it's very straightforward. You clearly spy on your kids. Like It's way more nuanced than that. And the article reflects that fact. I was going to say, I mean, uh, that's that's giving parenting advice. <laughs> yeah, it's very humble about giving such advice. Okay. So not opinionated and I know best sort of advice. Okay. It's more reasoned, which is why I, why I thought it was worth doing. And a, a lot of parents, you know, when you were a kid, you can't look at your parents to see how to deal with tech as a parent <laughs> because your parents didn't have that problem. You do. Right, right. When, when you were talking about uh, the dating thing where you call you have somebody call to to give you the escape yeah. hatch cell phones had not been invented when i was dating last so <laughs> there you go actually yes yeah, so that wouldn't have worked you'd have to ring the restaurant and have the waiter come up and say excuse me there's a call for a, <laughs> a whole different kettle of fish you're dead right we used to have yeah you have to arrange to meet people at an actual time and place agreed up front oh yeah it's crazy it's crazy anyway uh, Intego have a nice review piece Apple security in 2019 year in review if you want the sort of the forest for the trees look of Apple security for last year that's, it's a well written article um, if you're in the mood for being scared Vice have a really good article but it's not happy news security researchers decided to see how easy it would be to de-anonymize so-called anonymous data and the answer is far too bloody easy yeah so, I, maybe that maybe that was why my reaction to being recognized on the street was not alarmed because it's like yeah so <laughs> I mean I I shouldn't be that yeah, way, I see but, where you you're know, coming from you know after yeah. a while you you just find it really hard to be alarmed again it's it's getting harder and harder I I tend to avoid being alarmed but I do it does make me more encouraged to call for us actually proactively regulating things instead of the Wild West we have at the moment. Yeah. I, I think we've moved on from Wild West time. I think this is mature enough now. I'm afraid I've, I've lost all hope. CDHS, yeah, CFCC story, you know. <laughs> You're not factually wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I am, I am an optimist. I am such an optimist. I had a boss once who said, Allison, I think if you'd been on the Titanic... You would have said, good news, we're getting swimming lessons. <laughs> That's how optimistic I, I was. The optimist, I, I describe myself as a glass one quarter full kind of person. Wait, that's a pessimist, isn't it? No, it's a quarter full. Yeah. It's less than half empty. So most people say your glass is almost empty. No, 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 it's a quarter full. It's an optimist point of view. <laughs> okay, I don't get that. Okay, keep going. 
Anyway, last one, securing iCloud, why it's time for an end-to-end encryption option for our backups, which is an opinion piece very much related to what we talked about last time. Oh, okay. So, Cleansy Palette, the wonderful podcast series Command Line Heroes is back. Oh, I was so mad when they disappeared right after you told me about them. I I listened to all of them and then went, wait, they're not, wait, Red Hat, come on. Yeah, so they're very much mini-series. I believe there's six episodes per series, and they come out like, you know, a series a year, I think, is sort of the pattern. Anyway, good news. It's been a year, I guess. Um, The next series is out. The first episode is up. I listened to it. I learned a lot. It was really fun. So the first episode is Mini Computers, The Soul of an Old Machine. Oh, how They're focusing fun. on hardware this season. Hmm. Interesting. No. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're really well produced, but not... Not, not. I don't know how to describe it. They're just interesting people talking about interesting computery stuff, historical but computer driven. I loved it. Yeah, no need for be- propellers on beanies is maybe the best way to say it. And you can go back and listen to the to the back catalog because it's historical. It's not like this is what happened this week. It's this is how JavaScript was written, which I think was the first one you turned me on to. That was just fascinating. Yeah, in a weekend, being the bit about it that sort of made me go, yeah, what now? <laughs> does yeah. explain a lot, though. Yeah. So, yes, the other series, I'm very much enjoying it. Um, that is that is all I got for you. All right. Well, to the listeners, yes, we know that there were a few uh, breakups, not Skype breakups. These were uh, Discord breakups. But hopefully, I will, I, by the time you hear this, I will have edited out most of them. I do not envy you, Alison. You have... Very awkward editing to do today. We've got um, four different note spots where it's like, okay, couldn't understand a word from 25 to 27. <laughs> I'm but, sure you'll do wonderfully and the listeners would never have noticed if we hadn't said it. Oh, sure. <laughs> anyway. Right, Par, thanks for all the, all the work you did here. No problemo. And as always, dear listeners, remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. If you made it to the end of the show, you made it to an hour and 43 minutes. These are big shows during this time of year. Anyway, don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Now, remember, we talked about all the different ways to connect. Everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want podfeet.com slash Patreon, podfeet.com slash PayPal for one-time donations if you prefer that, podfeet.com slash Facebook, podfeet.com slash slack podfeet.com slash amazon and if you want to join in the fun of the live show head on over to podfeet.com slash live on sunday nights at 5 p.m pacific time like troy did for his actual birthday and join the friendly and enthusiastic docilla castaways thanks for listening and stay subscribed